And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Chapter 20, Eloquent, Part 6. We hold these truths to be self-evident.
Use your imagination, suspend this belief, to take you to Hawaii. That's right, because the original Dr. Pepper girl, actress Donna Loren, yeah. is now residing in Hawaii, where she is happily enjoying the life of a fashion designer. You know that she's the original Dr. Pepper girl? I, I think that's what I just said. Yeah, I'm impressed by that. <laughs> I, I, I want to meet her. Uh, modeling Donna's designs tonight. Some people that are not so hard to look at. Models from Auto and the cast of Sunset Beach. Ladies and gentlemen, Adasa. Even though Waimea, also known as Camuela, is a very small town with a population of under 10,000 people, like every town, there's an industrial business side and a commercial business side. Our building was in the industrial side, and for a maximum shopping experience, we found a space opened in the commercial side. It was next to a magnet restaurant, Merriman's, that attracted people from the resorts. At the time, I made an agreement with Donald Pliner for him to custom sandals with my fabric to match my dress collection. That was a very successful collection for me. We were being romanced by the leasing director of the Hilton Hawaiian Village in Honolulu. On our way to visit her, we stopped by our Merriman location on our way out of town. There was a platinum blonde, very New York-looking woman milling around our store with a couple of other people at her side when we walked in. 9-11 had just occurred, and she had been stranded on the island. While she was waiting for the airport to loosen up their security, she took the opportunity to explore. We introduced ourselves to her, and she responded with, I'm one of the fashion editors of Lucky Magazine. Your boutique is spot on. We'd like an article on you. What a coup! Here she was, held hostage by the tragedy in her native city, showering us with this blessing. I clearly remember this was only four days after the incident and the first day that the airports were open. We thanked her and went on our way to Honolulu. The streets of Honolulu were a ghost town after 9-11. In one way, we could imagine how it felt to be in paradise without millions of people all around. But the truth was that we were living in the shadow of the terrorist attack. You can never escape reality, even on an island. We met with the leasing director at the Hilton Hawaiian Village, Elvis's favorite place to stay. She explained to us that they were looking for a business to fill a space in their village where they have over 90 merchants. This was an empty, freestanding building between Louis Vuitton and Tiffany. Whoa, this is a move up. Are we ready for something like this? Jared and I didn't give them an answer right away. Like everyone, we're feeling the trauma of what had just happened in New York, Arlington, and Pennsylvania. It would also mean a dramatic change in our lifestyle and a possible move to Honolulu. Our friend had a studio apartment in the Diamond Head Beach Hotel. She let us stay in on our initial visit. Well, we kind of fell in love with the building and its location directly by Diamond Head. Following our first visit, while we were debating whether this change was the best for us, we ended up staying in a different unit, number 1201, right on the ocean. Could be serendipity that this unit was for sale at a price we could afford, which moved us in a direction that tipped the scale. 
all businesses were suffering at the time, so we really had to search our souls if we were willing to take this enormous chance. The Hilton Hotel called an emergency meeting for all of the merchants and invited us to be part of it as prospective clients. We all sat in a ballroom, listening to the president of the Hilton Hawaiian Village. He actually singled us out and gave us the opportunity to decline. In that moment, a surge of courage soared through both of us, and we knew we had to do it. Our quiet words to each other were, if we can make it now, we can make it any time. That sealed the deal, and we bought the apartment. We opened Adasa at the Hilton Hawaiian Village in November on the day after Thanksgiving. What an interesting period that you're speaking about, Donna, that this decision to take a leap into a new part of your business, but reminding us all of that time in 2001 of 9-11 that's now been, what is it I'm, I'm trying to count, 20, 22 years? Um, that's right. Almost, almost. Almost. Almost 22 years. And um, I, I think many of us remember what that experience was like, those of us who lived it have very indelible memories of it. Even here in Australia, I, I remember what it felt like, albeit we were almost a world away from where it had occurred. It's something that takes you right back there. So when you're talking about that idea of the streets being a ghost town and weren't quite sure what, what was going to happen, where the world was going to be, um, I think a lot of people listening who did experience it will remember that. And, and those who didn't might get a bit of a window into that experience. Yeah, and as you're saying that, Adam, I'm also correlating it to, I think, anyone who was alive the day that President Kennedy was assassinated Mm. remembers precisely where they were and, you know, how it affected them and, and who they were with. Just very provocative experiences. And, you know, they touch you deeply emotionally and it's an assault on your own person as well as on an entire culture. And so I was just wandering around my my five acres <laughs> in <laughs> North Kohala on the big mm, island. Mm. And Jimmy Lawrence and his daughter Leah had moved into the apartment over the garage and he became our caretaker. And um, she was still going to school as a teenager and doing some modeling for me because she was a very tall, slender, blonde beauty. And so Leah was the one came out of her apartment uh, and came into the backyard and said, you're not going to believe what just happened Mm -hmm. because they were watching the news. Yeah. And I think it was around Hawaii time. It was around eight or eight 30 in the morning. And um, I was just out in the garden picking vegetables or something and came in the house and told Jared, you know, to turn on the television so we could see what was going on. And I recall, you know, the um, the first building, you know, the first tower, and then I saw the plane go into the second tower. And yeah. I saw the whole tragedy, and, I, and there was a chef that I don't recall his name, but he had an office. Um, or no, his restaurant was in the first tower. He had yeah. come down to the street level to get some coffee while his staff was upstairs preparing mm-hmm. for the day. And, um, and he, his life was spared because of that. 
And that was my first impression of, of the horror. And then kind of like, as you said, just the shock, just, mm. just the mm. shock. Um, and living on an island in a pretty idyllic, you know, environment with, you know, beautiful flowers and, oh, you know, just living in the tropics. It's very otherworldly. Mm. So to have that kind of um, something that affects you, uh, it really altered your disposition. It just rang through your whole nervous system. Is, is that what happened to you? I think very much so that here it was uh, late at night. So um, oof, I'm maybe 9.30, 10.30 at night, something like that. And I was studying for an exam because I was, I was in university. I was in my second year of university. And someone texted me and said, you know, turn on the TV. The, the, uh, the tower has been hit. And so you turn it on and, and you see what's happened. And I think it, it's just something that... Um, you know, you know, perhaps putting ourselves back into that mind space that it just wasn't something that you fathomed that this idea that while it unfolded pretty quickly as to what it was that this had been something deliberate, it it it, it hadn't been an accident. Um, it, it just wasn't something in in your way of thinking that you could think that that was the case that this could happen. This could happen in New York, and so like you, I I sort of very quickly turned on the the different channels. I had the American channels because I had cable um, TV and just flicking between them and seeing what was unfolding so quickly and like you I'm sure I saw that the the second um the second tower albeit um I think we've spoken about this before that idea that some of these I think they're called flashbulb memories these kind of um experiences that a a whole lot of people experience such as JFK's assassination or 9-11 or, or uh, you know Princess Diana or, or events like that and sometimes we kind of we, we might misremember what we mm. saw and you know did I see it or did I see it on a replay but but either either way I was definitely watching unfold people running across the bridge and I just remember the shoes the people's shoes just kind <gasps> of insane do you remember that not as clearly as you do but you know just this 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 rush uh, this panic um, and how could you how could you run fast enough to get away from well yeah that? yeah absolutely and and I think just in those weeks that follow which you sort of talk about that uh, things were very different and um, you know obviously here like I said was a world away but you still felt that tenseness that there were other other potential attacks going on I remember the anthrax scares and I remember being on buses and you'd feel you'd feel very um, mm. ill at ease or, or even on on a plane when you finally took a plane again for whatever reason, just that unease that you did feel. But um, it, it was a very, yeah, very strange time. I think you capture that well. I think, I think what you're saying is we've, hmm, of course, you were, you were born in the 80s? Yeah, early, early 80s. Early 80s. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was quite a, quite a different world um, mm. that I grew up in. And mm. there was a lot of fear, I have mm. to admit, Mm. Um, but then in the sixties, there was this confluence of, you know, elation all the time and, you know, celebration of life and a lot of innovation. And, and it lasted even through the, you know, all of the murders in the, and the yeah. wars going yeah. on, there was still some sort of, um, um, hopefulness, but I think, I think by the turn of the century, which started out for me, you know, I remember, I don't know if I talked about this, but I remember on January 1st, change of the millennium, mm. that 
<laughs> I had this satellite in, in my backyard to pick up signals and um, I wasn't getting very, very many stations, <laughs> but one of them happened to be called the Wisdom Channel. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the morning of the first was Dalai Lama mm, mm. talking about equanimity. And of course, the night before, um, Jared and I um, decided to stand out in our yard um, among the circle of palms just a minute after midnight and exchange our vows. Right, right. And, um, and, you know, and, and then that day, it was a full moon on January 1st, and, mm. and he drove me up to the top of the Mauna Kea, which... Um, at 9,000 feet, the oxygen level was still okay. I was awake. But then by the time we got to 14,000 feet where all the observatories were, yeah. um, I, I passed out. Oh, wow. <laughs> but on the way up, I saw the full moon rising in mm. the indigo sky and the, and the sunset um, to my um, right going up this tall mountain of the Mauna Kea. And then waking up as, thank God, Jared, you know, had the uh, coherence to, to be able to drive up that alt elevation. Oh, and then geez, come can back you imagine? Down. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you can imagine all the scientists that go there to work, you know, what they have to adapt to. Just a little bit woozy. You know, some of the discoveries <laughs> might be a little bit suspect. but Oh, that's know, why they see. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, it was it absolutely unforgettable. So, the, you know, the turning of the millennium mm. seemed to be quite hopeful. Mm. Um, and and um, then, of course, the um, the political situation took a turn for the worse. And yes. Um, and and just the idea of fear, mm. I think. Um, with 9-11 that just put it in like an anchor and because that's pretty much you know the way that the world's been functioning is on fear and that's why you know the powerful can maintain their power based yeah. on the masses being in fear so it's interesting that you you know you explained your experience it's such a beautiful morning
again, I don't know. I, I have this kind of, what do you call this um, dual uh, um, consciousness of what's going on that might be so tragic and still a sense of my crazy cockeyed optimism inside yeah. me. Yeah. Which um, on day four on the big island, mm. you know, I went to my atelier and boutique mm. and um, and there was a woman snooping yeah, yeah. around. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, she looked very interesting. She looked like a tourist, you know, that the, you could kind of tell the local people who live there uh, from the tourists and. And then she announces that she's the fashion editor of Lucky Magazine and that she wanted to do an article on us. Yeah. And um, and one thing led to another. Then we then someone from the Hilton Hotel on Oahu uh, in Honolulu shows up and invites us to come over and see this vacancy on their property. They had um, literally a village of 90 vendors in, and um, just a gigantic hotel with lots of towers and that's where Elvis used to stay yeah had you stayed there before oh no I am I'm a boutique girl <laughs> so um, literally um, it didn't take long I mean we had a friend that did have a place near Diamond Head yeah and um, and she had a little uh, kind of a studio apartment that we stayed in the first time we were there well that building was the original Holiday Inn built in 1959. Right. Yeah. And it was in the shape of a pyramid. Very awesome. And in our, you know, ultimately in our apartment, that's when you made contact with Jared and I. Right. And right. you were, you were in university yep. and, you know, and we got together through the internet. Yep. And so, and blossomed our, our friendship. Well, so we, um, the second time we came over, you know, uh, because the uh, Hilton Hotel was quite enthusiastically yeah. trying to yeah. engage us. And this was, I've forgotten this. Well, it was, it was before, it was before 9-11, obviously. But mm. so we, it was a 14 story building. Yeah. And um, the second time we were there, we stayed in a unit called 1201 and was right at the edge of the ocean and uh, you know you walked out on the balcony and looked over and you could see the fish swimming by in fact um i learned the name of the hawaiian fish try saying that five times in a row (laughs) and literally it's quite a large tropical fish that's that's the state fish (laughs) of hawaii and you could see it from our 12th story balcony tremendous how big are we talking then is this fish oh um not quite two feet wow yeah it was quite a quite a sizable tropical fish yeah (laughs) and um so and it was kind of round so Mm. you know it wasn't a slender so um (laughs) a, a real joy and we ended up um finding out that um each one of these units that were being rented as a, a hotel were being converted into condos. Right. And, um, and so uh, the price was right, and Jared and I decided to invest. And so we purchased 1201 and called that home base. Well, that was kind of probably the end of summer. And um, then the commitment came 
yeah. when all of the 90 vendors were invited and we had not signed yet. Mm-hmm. But um, in this big ballroom, all of, you know, all of the vendors were there and the CEO of the Hilton, you know, was giving everyone the opportunity to um, exit. Wow, that's that's amazing when you think about it. And some of, as you said, some of the high-end stores that were that were involved there where you were going to be sandwiched between two of them. And I was going to yeah. be between Louis Vuitton and Tiffany. Yeah, yeah. And it was a freestanding building, which would give me a lot of windows and, you know, showcase windows. Yeah. And so... Something, you know, Jared and I looked at each other and that hopefulness just came through all of Mm. this kind of um, tragedy. And we decided if we could do it now, we could do it anytime. And so we decided to go for it. And uh, (laughs) we signed we signed our contract at the end of 2001. And and um, I mean, this seems like a big change that. What had uh, this had been several years of you starting to design as as you've spoken about in our episodes, starting to design for yourself and then gradually developing collections and then and then opening um, retail. Uh, but this seems like quite a quite a big jump, both in terms of on a it's on a different island to where you live. Um, it's it's in a really amped up space. Um, a very, it's a whirlwind. Yeah, and and as we get into you know the the story, one of the Hilton girls mm. used to be a regular visitor to her <laughs> hotel and discovered that she liked some of the some of the uh, merchandise that we carried, and so she was a, a regular and um and of course tourism turned on to the celebrity aspect of who would come to see us. And then there was a fellow who had a Sunday afternoon television show in Hawaii Mm -hmm. called Hawaiian Moving Company. And they did like a half an hour special on Mm -hmm. myself and, you know, who I had been. And before I knew it, I would walk down the sidewalk in Waikiki and people would say hello and they would know who I am and it was quite friendly and quite lovely for those five years that 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 was uh, happening there and you know it's always nice when when you're not from a place mm. to feel like you belong especially me that you know has this the stigma of not feeling like I belong to my family and then suddenly I move into Honolulu mm. Mm. and Waikiki and and people are embracing Jared and I and um, and what we're doing and who we were and who we are. And it was it was just very, very aloha. Yeah. And because I was going to say that because you wouldn't necessarily think that when sometimes when people think of Honolulu, they think of this, you know, it's, it's much more, more bigger, much more touristy. But you did you did feel that sense of belonging there. Oh, yes. Oh, you know, where we where we bought the apartment um, by Diamond Head. It was about a half a mile or so walk into mm-hmm. Waikiki. There was a park called Queen Kailani Park, and the street was King Kalakaua, and that was her king when there was a kingdom in Hawaii. Mm. And that park was their summer palace. And our apartment was right across the street from this beautiful park with these gorgeous shower trees and these other trees that you know the name is escaping me but they creaked in the wind like an old floorboard that you step on um in the wind it was quite amazing and and you could feel the carriages 
you know, when you're walking down the lane in between these, these trees, you could feel the carriages that the queen and king were, were riding on in their summer palace. So we, we, loved, we loved walking in Honolulu and Waikiki. And, and then, you know, just so many, well, you're walking right along the ocean and people are getting married or, you know, or there's homeless people that, that say hello. And, you know, and, yeah. and the temperature is so even that, you know, every day you listen to the news and it's 88, 88, <laughs> 88, 88. And the night temperature is 78, 78, with very, very rare variations. Variations of it, yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It just like every Friday night, there would be um, an open air theater that say, sat like 1,500 people and vendors would come and the mayor of the town would, would be there. And it, it was just quite friendly when we right. were there those five years. <laughs> and 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 across from the zoo was the shell which was the amphitheater for the major entertainers you know in mm. our apartment if our windows were open we could hear bonnie Raitt or the cosimero brothers or you know or jack johnson or <laughs> not half <laughs> and, bad <laughs> and 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 across the street from the from the shell was the honolulu zoo and every day if we did uh, not walk and we drove we drove past where the giraffes lived and so the giraffes would wander <laughs> up to a fence by the trees and you know they had nice little roaming areas <laughs> that was that was our our life there and so we found it literally it was really an extension yeah. of family and then one of my really great friends that I'm I, I have a sisterhood with that I spoke about, um, her name is Keiko, and she mm. had run for mayor of the Big Island at one point. Yeah. She lived in Honolulu at the time in this cute little town called um, Kaimuki, and that wasn't far from where we lived. So I had um, extended family as well. So it was just amazing. And then anyone that we worked with, our manager was just wonderful. Her name was Allison. And she knew all our products. She knew how to handle the clients. She knew how to handle the, our, the staff of salespeople. And she took good care of everything. And, you know, I mean, it was just um, quite an interesting time. Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to talk about in in our new chapters. We'll we'll talk a lot more about that and and reveal the Hilton sister who was coming to see her hotel. I love that we call it her hotel. It is, <laughs> yes, it is her hotel. Um, but um, just to mention Keiko Vonk, um, because you did me- you did mention her previously that you helped design a campaign wardrobe for her when yes. she was running. But she's quite an impressive person. So she she was always in uh, very influential in government. Mm-hmm. Um, she worked on city councils and, um, and her family was a, a very foundational family in Hawaii. Her father was a surveyor um, responsible for the main roads and tunnels in Hawaii. Yeah. And her mother was a classically trained potter that was always being shown in the Honolulu Academy, which was the museum in Honolulu. And so she came from 
of a prominent family, not a uh, high society that, mm. that, you know, it wasn't royalty, but very politically and community oriented. And she still is. Right. And she's also an artist from what I remember as well. And an artist, definitely. Because at one point when she did a New York stint uh, for, I think, about 10 years and collaborated with artists of that time um and uh i think was kind of like part of the beat generation right yeah yeah fantastic but just a a real um salt of the earth person and she's still i think she she has a a a band because she's a rocker (laughs) she's like when she was campaigning she was out rocking at night along that's that was her reputation that she you could find her singing in clubs with her band and her band was called the Monkey Wrench Club. <laughs> That's great. I know. <laughs> I, I, I love these people who have multiple and varying interests. Um, it's something to aspire to and, and, to, uh, and to admire. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, diversity. Like they say, you know, it's, there's never a dull moment when, you, you know, you do what you love to do and usually do more than one thing. So, you know, <laughs> right. Well, that's, I think that leads in quite well to our next fan guest, because as became apparent in our conversation, Donna, this is someone who does a lot of different things and, and is very busy um, and very, uh, I guess, entrepreneurial. So we had a really great time speaking to our fan guest. And who was that, Donna? This is Leticia, and she is a woman of empowerment. Well, Love's a Secret Weapon community, please welcome our latest fan guest. With us, we have journalist, author, and historian, the Leticia Lopez. Such a pleasure to have you with us because we're kind of turning the tables a little bit that you have previously interviewed Donna as part of your writing work. And, and today we're, we're kind of not interviewing, but we're going to have a conversation with you. Yes, of course. Thank you so much, Adam and Donna. You know, it's a, it's such a wonderful pleasure to be with you both. And, you know, like you've said, I've, I'm a historian and I'm a journalist. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was able to interview the lovely Donna. And like now to just have that opportunity to talk with her again, and it's just wonderful. And I'm so glad to be talking mm-hmm. with the both of you and for being Re- here. Remind us, sweetheart, you're the flower in our garden today. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> um, the uh, magazine that that uh, you were doing the article about me in? Yeah, so that was for Rebeat Magazine. Mm-hmm. It was an online publication uh, that was specifically um, about the 1960s. It was about music, fashion, about movies. And I began working there as a contributing writer because I had this background in in journalism, and I was always fascinated with the 1960s. So being able to contribute to the publication was just one of my dreams that was able to be accomplished. And of course, having the opportunity to interview you during 
uh, the year that you released your book, Pop 60s, was an incredible and fantastic moment for me as a writer and both as a 1960s fan. Oh, well, that I, I recall having a lovely conversation with you and I look forward to picking up where we left off and maybe even going a bit broader and deeper into your life. And uh, getting, to know, getting to know you a little better. Uh, first, I want to, wait a minute, where are you again? I'm in California. I'm in the Central Valley. You and your mom. So do you live with your mother? Yes, I still live with both of my parents. I was born and raised in Central Valley of California. And ever since I graduated from high school, I immediately went on to college, mm. Um at the time, I was still kind of debating what I wanted to major in, but they were very supportive in allowing me to continue my education and helping me decide what career I wanted to go into. And, you know, since then, they've, they've just offered so much love, support, and, you know, whether it be like receiving me each day after a long day of studying or like doing research and you know that my mom was always welcoming me with a, a home-cooked meal and you know always being there with me to have conversations about school like whether I was stressed out or like even those moments you know when you're when you're trying to get your life together as a as a 18 year old a 19 year old or even into your early 20s like he was always there giving me feedback and encouragement to never give up no matter how hard the road was so he's been a very a very supportive mother. And, you know, I still get to live with her and live with both of my parents, actually. And I there were times where I, I wanted to move out because, you know, like as you're growing and you're becoming an old adult, you kind of want to go on on your own and stuff. But they they have offered so much to me emotionally and supportive and that they they kind of I'm one of the two daughters that they have. So mm -hmm. they really love me a lot and I, I love them back too. So we just want to keep living together as long as they continue to let me in their house, you know, but, you know, mm -hmm. but they can, they allow me to grow as a person as well. They're not always like behind trying to keep me inside the house or yeah. stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, um, <laughs> that's, uh, I think that's really interesting. You say that because, you know, sometimes and, and not meaning to do it, but, uh, we can always be a bit stuck in some of those roles that we can be seen as, as always a child. And it sounds mm -hmm. like you, you've been able to grow as, as you've grown up, you've been able to grow into a different relationship with your parents that is both as adults and a very supportive one. So it's interesting, Letitia, you were reminding me when you were talking about those long days of studying or researching, because what you do as a journalist and a, and a researcher, you know, researching a, a lot of your work in, in the 60s, it's, it's often, I relate to this because it's often you're sitting in front of a computer all day and you're, you're looking up old articles or you're doing whatever. And it, and it can it can be a little bit solitary. Do you find that or? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are many moments where when I was first starting out where I didn't have much of a social life just because I was so willing to learn, you know, because as a journalist or as a historian, you have to enjoy learning, you know, whether it be reading books or talking to other people, other researchers and, you know, watching a bunch of documentaries. So you do have to spend a lot of time with yourself and kind of like analyze those works or 
or the thesis or whatever it is you're reading or researching and it can be very very solitary but like in any other job or any career you have to take those breaks so that you can you know have time for yourself and enjoy whether it be outside or whether it be going at the local record store or going out for a cup of coffee you know it's always nice because it refreshes your mind and it refreshes you even if going out with your friends and then for an hour or so and then getting back to that work because it can get a little bit kind of lonely, you know, because you're yeah. you're surrounded by books and and documents rather than people. <laughs> that's that's so so uh, so true, isn't it? And um, I'm sure John is interested in this. Is you know what drew you to journalism, and then what sort of drew you to your interest in uh, particularly the 1960s and and mid century? Uh huh. Yeah, that's a very interesting story because. When I first started high school, I was a freshman and, you know, I was always this very, very shy person. I never really, I was never really outspoken. I was never like the life of the party or like the popular girl or anything. So the academics were not just something that I had to do based for school, but it was also a type of escape for me because, you know, we have a, a variety of, of art, whether it be they taught us how to paint or how to write, whether it be creative writing, like poetry or essays. And then, of course, we have music. And English was one of the ways where where it didn't feel like a school subject felt like something that I could be interested outside of school mm. and reading became such a huge part because when I was growing up, reading was always something so boring. Why do we have to do it? Right. And when I entered high school, we started to read a lot of literature and like poetry, like Robert Frost and a bunch of great authors. And that's when I realized writing is something that I really enjoy, whether whether it's reading other people's work or writing my own thing, trying to be creative with poetry or writing short stories. And journalism kind of sprouted from that because journalism allowed me to not only read about other people, but to be a, a curious mind and develop questions that probably other historians or journalists or other people hadn't thought about. I, I would have that ability to talk with with people and like get those answers or cover an event and be able to transport readers taught us that we needed to learn from the past in order to enjoy the present and then also enjoy the present so that you could later on think of the future but the future wouldn't be the main focus because you want to focus on the present while learning from the past so that you won't do any mistakes while you're in the present so mm -hmm. so history really really taught me a lot about elvis presley because i was a huge elvis presley fan when i was age 13 and being in high school i learned so much about him and like how rock and roll was this huge counterculture thing because it gave teenagers their own identity their own their own fashion their own music genre their own way to express themselves and be themselves without listening to the older artists that their parents were listening to and you know the 1960s was a very juxtaposition era where you got all this great music this great fashion great cinematography but you also have the war and and racism and what i what really caught my attention about the 1960s was that the young generation was basically the one in control 
of trying to be against the war, be against racism, be against segregation, and just being very loving humans and seeking peace and being able to do something that was going to impact future generations, but that was also going to help them at that moment, at that time, whether it be, you know, celebrating the first Earth Day in the early 70s or being outspoken and activist of against racism or against lo- those people who were like very masochistic and like saying that the women should be in their home and you know it was just an era where there was good times and there was bad times but those bad times were able to bring people together to create a sense of a sensitivity and awareness of where we should be going in the next 20, 40, 50 years. And, you know, some of those, those social causes and, and political things have coming up today. And, you know, it's still something that we still have to work and strive for in order to make a place that's safe and equal for everyone. And so that's kind of why. Listen, honey, I think mm-hmm. that um, you have you have the capabilities of running for a, an office in your district. You have a tremendous voice for the people, and as a journalist, you know, uh, found it with the Journalist Foundation, uh, you mm-hmm. have such a wonderful perspective. Have you ever considered doing anything like that for the public? Oh, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I've I haven't thought about it, but, you know, I always try to be somebody who is very vocal in my city or in my my county, whether it be for women's rights, for animal rights, for awareness about the earth and our global climate. But, you know, the politics of it, I've never actually thought about that. <laughs> well, just a moment. Um, Dr. Adam, I'm going to go off into... Um, a subject that's near and dear to Mm. my heart, Mm. and that is um, healthy soil. And um, I would presume that in Central California, there's a major agricultural community. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. And that, you know, sources of water, clean water, um, and healthy soil are, you know, are, are vanishing. Mm-hmm. And that part of, shall we say, a transformational energy that's occurring on planet Earth is about going, and I'm going to say this, <laughs> and now I can apply history, going back <laughs> to the uh, kind of farming that holds the land sacred. And that agriculture, you know, during my entire, our lifetimes, but my entire lifetime has been one of depleting the soil using chemical fertilizers. And now we have GMO seeds and all this manipulation, but you're in a district, you're in a, you're in a part of the country and you're in a state that um, would support this movement toward more organic farming, more regenerative farming, you know, that whole subject is really critical for where you live, I believe. Yes, absolutely. It's some, yeah, just, I was just going to say, I know Donna and I, we've spoken about this before, but yeah, that whole idea that for decades, um, so much of what was uh, spoken about or 
debated or lived through in the 60s, um, I, I think to take the garden metaphor, kind of lied dormant for a long time afterwards. And, oh, yes. And now we're, we're coming back to a lot, of, a lot of those issues where we have depleted the environment um, over decades. And, yes. And, well, yeah. I think that, you know, um, to add to what you're saying, Adam, and also what you have said, Letitia, is that um, corruption in corruption and distortion in people's minds that come from distorted egos mm-hmm. of power, you know, power struggles um, that, you know, have come to, uh, I don't know, kind of an epic peak <laughs> today mm-hmm. and uh it's like reaching the summit of the mountain you know um and connecting with um the source of of all you know all that is um that more wisdom is coming in because we know that that's a dead end and um the corruption has been you know how can i split an atom how you know how can i feed the world how can i control this control that and um that whole philosophy permeates every single aspect of our lives for my entire life um so it started in 1941 you know with the splitting of the atom and then creating dvt during world war ii uh from i've think it was, uh, you know, in the German side, but um, however these are authenticated, those two elements have totally changed, you know, the way that that this earth is trying to survive and and all life on it. So, Mm. so getting back, you know, to your participation, honey, I think you start with uh, getting on a city council and um, and then seeing, you know, how far you want to go and how much time you have to devote to it. But, I mean, you certainly have <laughs> what it takes, it sounds to me. <laughs> That's a very exciting thing that you might have not thought about. <laughs> I, I really liked or, or found it really interesting what you were saying, Letitia, about this idea of that nuance of the 60s that I think... I love that era as well, um, as as our listeners know. I didn't grow up in that era. But sometimes I, I guess we uh, or people can talk about this whole idea of how idyllic the 60s was and how wonderful and how they wish they lived there now. And what I sort of really related to when you were speaking is this idea of that juxtaposition or that yep. nuance. You know, there were so many wonderful things, as we've spoken about, as Donna's been able to share with our listeners over, you know, the last... 60 plus episodes we've done of this podcast but then there was there was so much um you know in terms of women's rights in terms of minority rights that were not necessarily where they should have been you know sometimes I say oh I'd love to it's a bit of a, a a throwaway comment I'd love to live in the 60s and my partner says you know if we were living in the 60s we would not probably be living together we would probably have to hide yeah. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. you know, all, all sorts of things. So I, I just, um, I really like what you were saying there about that complexity, because I think we want to take the best of that decade, but we also want to see it for the bits where it fell short as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And may I also bring up going back to what you were saying, you know, both of you were talking about the loneliness aspect of being a writer. Mm. And I, I've, you know, I've totally uh, related to that as well as, you know, anytime you he- hear a great author and 
and you see the ink stains on their fingers and whatever, you know, and, you know, and the, and the bottles of whiskey and the, you know, and the ashtrays that are overflowing and, you know, and the lack of relationships, but, you know, yes, I think that great authors, just like a a Jack Kerouac um, on the road, for an example, when I was reading that, I had a virtual experience because this man gave me his life experience. And I can't imagine him being lonely, putting that life experience down on paper. It's just a tremendous effort. So from my perspective, something that you read that touches you comes from someone who may be alone in solitaire, uh, in solitude, excuse me, <laughs> but, um, but actually... When you really think about it, they're having a virtual experience that they're just, you know, documenting. And I know that's what happens to me. And think about it. Just think about it. You know, yes, you're alone. But are you? Mm, That's really interesting, isn't it? I don't know about your process, but um, that's so true. It's almost like when you're drawing on something else, whether it's characters, whether it's writing about a particular situation you are in some ways living it really yeah absolutely especially when the opportunity to cover art galleries or like um like this most recent article that i did was on a mural in san francisco a 1960s icon in san francisco called carol dota she was at the condor club you know she was the first female stripper who launched this sensation of topless dancing around the world and you know i might i might spend time you know doing the research whether it was doing reading old newspaper articles about carol dota or like watching some of the old documentaries that have been made about her but you know uh i was able to attend the opening reception and you know i wasn't i wasn't lonely anymore because I was able to attend the event and I got to perceive the excitement of the people who were there unveiling of the mural, family of the artist or family and old friends of Carol speak about their experiences knowing her or living up in San Francisco and being able to pass by the Condor Club in the 60s, you know, so you, you, you may feel lonely during the process of writing and the research, but when you cover events like that or if you're writing a book on a certain subject or era you get to talk to those people and your your mind and your life gets more fulfilling because you learn about other people's perspectives other people's life stories and you're able or you maybe thought that you had nothing in common but you know something or other how you grew up or like in what city you visited and like they happen to be living in that same city now and stuff like that so it's it's really it's an interesting job position because, you know, afterwards you get that fulfilling sensation of learning, learning about other people and learning about their, their lives. And, you know, you connect with them in a personal level and in, in a career level as well, because you're doing your job. Wow. So you're, you're reaffirming. Uh, (laughs) I mean, if I lived in the state of California, I would vote for you. (laughs) seriously you know honey you you have you have both ends covered you have the ability to express yourself and and communicate you know so that through your writing you know people 
can read your thoughts and and um, and your information, as well mm-hmm. as adding the other dimensions of meeting these people and getting to know them and listening to them and experiencing them and and relating to them. And that's a very interesting. Now, you're saying her name is Carol Dota. Is that her real name? Yes, that's her real name. Okay. And what did she go by? Uh, She went by Carol Dota. It was just her her real name that she used on her working at the Condor Club. She didn't use no stage name, no nothing. And Oh, the funny thing, the the funny and curious thing was that um, besides becoming like this huge say, sensation for being a topless dancer in San Francisco and like mm-hmm. launching this whole topless dancer phenomenon, was that she later began starring in a few like minor roles for movies, and one of them was mm-hmm. in The Monkey's Head, uh, the 1960s oh. film. And she was she played the she played Sally Silicone, and she was the supposed like girlfriend of Mike Nesmith in the film, where he is kind of dressed up like that kind of gangster, like 1940s gangster, and she's like his gangster baby, his girlfriend, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty funny to see her there, and you know she she seems like a very shy person and you know when i spoke to some of her old friends in san francisco during the event they were saying like oh she she was one of the most shy people and she was very sweet and caring but once she got on stage that shyness and everything went away and so you know i was able to watch that movie head and seeing her there like she's very stunning and you know the name sally silicone was because she got um breast implants during the 1960s when they weren't a huge thing yet as they are now and so she became famous for that as well is she still alive uh, no, she passed away in 2015. Right. And um, mm-hmm. I, I was just looking up because I do this sometimes when we're talking to get a bit of context and I just came across the New York Times obituary mm-hmm. and like you're saying that she did undertake these procedures at a time when when they weren't necessarily um, what safe. they are now. Yes, safe. Yeah. And, and it says that some of the procedures have since been banned. Um, but this is this is quite cute that... Uh, it says, but Miss Dota, who began every day with a bowl of Wheaties, said she suffered no <laughs> health complications. So you've got to have your Wheaties in the morning, no matter what, whether you're a, oh, whether, whether you're a dancer at the Condor Club or wherever else. Um, quite cute, That's really, hysterical. But... Show business is very, very hard. You have to be on your toes all the time. There's nudity in your now, show. Now, wait a minute, I want to tell you something. There's nudity in my show, but it's done tastefully. Like a nude painting. It has taste. Let's start at the beginning. Carol Dota was a cocktail waitress. She'd amuse the customers by getting up on the piano and dancing. Then the club's publicity agent, Davey Rosenberg, got the idea that would make history. Can you spot what's missing? Created by a designer named Rudy Gernreich. He bought one for Carol. And I said, great, a new costume. Topless Entertainment was born. Come on, everybody. Come on in. Bobby's going to show you how to do the swim. Can we describe your act at the Condor? Oh, it consisted of a piano and a body coming out of the ceiling on the piano with this wild rock and roll music.
quite a fascinating um, story. I'm interested, um, Donna, maybe you could speak to this a little bit because I think, Letitia, you've touched on this whole idea of particularly the woman's perspective and being a woman, whether it was in the 60s or, or now, and that unique voice that you would bring to your writing. But, um, Donna, your thoughts on this is a big subject, but as you being a young woman in the 60s, you could talk a little bit to that. Um, I know that's a very big subject, but, mm. um, yeah, you know, your perspective on it all. Well, you know, as you as you know, Dr. Adam, I used to have a column in uh, some of the teen magazines called mm. Let's Talk It Over. Mm. And it was more about, you know, where I went and who I was with and that kind of thing. Um, but I have to say that when I was traveling, especially in the Deep South for Dr. Pepper, that... Um, not that I could ever uh, or I ever wrote about it, but I recall distinctly being picked up by a um, you know, at the airport, being escorted in a police car mm. through a very um, kind of rural section in the south in Arkansas. Mm. And, uh, you know, the it was a very, very well, it was kind of like, you know, when you see documentaries of of the most impoverished parts of this country and maybe that's why I was driven by a police officer to make me feel safe but um you know and and I was obviously um chaperoned by my adopted father and uh and a Dr. Pepper executive in the car with us but for some reason seeing the conditions of how people were living Mm. I decided to speak up to the police officer. And um, I, uh, it was very empowering, you know, driving through this rural area where the, the road was, I remember it was kind of mounded and, um, and there were ditches on either side, I guess, to collect snow or uh, I have no idea. Um, but, but up on uh, perched up on the hills were these very very shabby shacks, and you know, and then um, there there was some sort of liquid flowing beside mm. the house, mm. and the police officer told me that um, these were like rivers of urine. Mm. Wow! They, and um, you know, so no, I never wrote about it per se, but um, I, I chose to talk to someone, let's say, of authority. Mm. Uh, and I think I made the Dr. Pepper executive uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly made my adopted father very uncomfortable. Yeah. All he wanted to do was uh, have some business. And may I, may I just insert something right now? Because I'm looking out my living room window up the mountain, mm. and which is filled with oak trees. And I see a deer nibbling on some oak, um, not that far from, from where I'm sitting inside <laughs> my house. It's like a pastoral scene. Uh, and I just wanted to share that with you it's amazing <laughs> that sounds very, beautiful yeah that's i love deer <laughs> i do too honey so um <laughs> you know i so adam now you're getting into more like a gloria steinem 
territory where, mm. you know, she was, she was, um, how do you say, t- not obsessed, but committed, mm. you know, to helping women uh, become empowered. And, mm. you know, from, from her background as a, as a young child whose mother uh, was basically incapacitated mentally yeah. that she became her caretaker. Mm. But, but it was again, like, even though there was role reversal, Gloria uh, and her mother had a loving relationship. And what happened is that her mother, before she got married and started having children, was actually beginning her career as a journalist. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when she started, you know, when she became a mother, she completely abandoned her career. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I can relate to that. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to be a full-time mother, but what happened is it, that's different from me is that she completely lost her identity. And and Gloria was aware of that. And so when she became a journalist, she was literally picking up the pieces from where her mother left off. Mm, That's so interesting, isn't it? That whole idea of, I guess, Gloria's awareness as well as what um, had come before her. And, you know, Letitia, picking up on that. But have you had particular mentors in your with your writing, with your the places you've worked, the publications you've worked for, whether they're women, whether they're men, uh, that you feel have in some way mentored you um, as to what a career might look like in this area? Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. I remember when I was first starting out, like almost ten years ago, there was a an author. She was a. a a female author. Her name is Jennifer Niven. And, you know, I I had first read about her, her work when I had gotten into reading and enjoying reading for fun. I, I began reading her books and reading books from a woman's perspective was so much more interesting to me rather than reading from a men's perspective, just because I could relate so much more when a woman was writing about her personal life or creating a character a female character with similar uh, projections or similar like lifestyle or or situations ships whether it be relationships with your family your your parents or romantic relationships it was always much more interesting and i remember reaching out to her via email and you know just thanking her for like writing about her memoirs and like what it was like growing up in the 80s and being a a teenage girl and deciding to be an author. And, you know, I, I related so much. I, I related to Jennifer Niven's work because she she wrote a memoir where she was about her teenage years and what it was like growing up, being somebody who wasn't that popular and how she found writing to be like a, a way for her to escape her reality and, you know, find out who she was as a person. And I remember feeling the same way during that time. And so I sent her an email and Mm -hmm. I, I thanked her like for the work that she had put out there in her books and in her memoirs and her fictional writing. And, you know, I had no idea that she was going to respond back Mm -hmm. and, and she did. And, you know, it was one of those moments where, where you're kind of 
validated for who you are as a person, that it's okay to change who you want to be and to follow your dreams, whether it be being an artist, an actor, or let's say you want to be a pharmacist or a teacher, you know, I felt very validated because writing was never seen as a, as a good career choice. And I feel like for me, she validated me as a person and me as a creative who wanted to write, not to just find out about myself and like who I wanted to be, but also to help others discover themselves and discover what they liked, what they disliked, or like to, like I've said before, transport them to a different era, a different time zone. And that's kind of where my writing career took off because she was able to mentor me and she she later on went to create an, an online magazine mm. called Jer Magazine. And so I was one of the 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 few writers that she contacted and said, Do you want to be a part of it? And I was like blown away because <laughs> at that time I was I was still in college and I wasn't sure if writing was gonna be a career that was gonna be fulfilling, whether money wise or like fulfilling to me as a person and you know she was really encouraging in how you could write for yourself tell the stories you want other people to hear or like tell the stories of others like the minorities or people who you've never seen like written about and it's, it's always been a goal of mine as a writer to tell the stories of the people who are who are less seen or the people who have made major contributions or small contributions to the world. And like nowadays, everybody's so obsessed with like celebrities and like the newest lip injections or all of that. And, you know, when I, when I focus on my subjects or the topics I want to write about, I always want to do it on people who are making impacts within the community, whether it be in San Francisco in Sacramento or like, or bigger audiences like in Los Angeles or most of the people that I've interviewed had been crucial to creating a better world, whether it be with their music, with their art, whether with their books, if they've written books. And as a journalist, our our goal is to give the voice to the voiceless or to the mm -hmm. people who are often left in the shadows and not focus the rest of the media or the rest of the world is is looking into and you know having somebody who mentored me early on and encouraged me to not give up my writing has really been an important an important aspect for who i become as a person and as a writer and you know i always hope that my writing inspires people to to be better people whether it be being able to enjoy life or discover something yeah. new about themselves because even if we're no longer teenagers or we're not, no longer in our 20s, like I feel like now that I'm in my 30s, I'm still growing as a person. I'm still growing as, as a writer. I'm growing as a historian. And, you know, sometimes throughout history, people have taught us that there's a certain age where you're supposed to know who you are or what you want to do. But I think we're always evolving and to be better people and being more compassionate and more 
aware of the world around us and about others. So that's it's here, amazing. Here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so true. Could, could not have, and we could not have said that any better, Donna, could we? That's the whole kind of mantra of this podcast is that that continuous learning. You're continually learning who you are and hopefully getting more in touch with the real you, um, whatever you want to call that. Um, yeah, Donna, please take take the I, floor. <laughs> I, I, I just feel like we're talking we're talking to like minded and these days it's you know it's there there's so much polarization mm. that um, it's so wonderful to be part of a community of people um, unlimited to location that um, are like-minded and and I and I see this movement growing and growing and expanding and expanding and connecting collectively um, you know all over the planet um, through writing and through music through the arts through education through communication and I was going to say um that I wanted to ask you both, actually, what is your major uh, method of writing? Do you write directly on a computer or do you take notes? Do you handwrite? What What do you do? Mm. So <laughs> I personally do a little bit of both, but I'm very old school that I like to write things down. <laughs> so I'll mostly write down ideas in my notebook or if I see an artist who is coming up with a new art exhibit or if I'm out about in the town and seeing that a local artist is going to perform or an organization is going to do a fundraiser, I always like to write things down just because for me, I'm so used to writing rather than typing or typing notes on my phone, you know? It, it makes it more concrete to me to write my ideas down in pen or or with pencil because I know that I'm actually going to do them. And it just, <laughs> yeah, and it, and it definitely solidifies the, the aspect of it becoming a reality because I know mm. I won't forget because my muscle memory had already jotted it down. So, so it's a lot more easier for me to, to write notes with pen or paper and, or a pencil rather than typing. So that's a really interesting question. <laughs> It is, and, and what you're talking about, there's a, a, in psychology, um, which is where I work, there is evidence that when we do write by hand, we do tend to take it in more, we do tend to process it more. It's just something um, which is interesting given the era that we're in now where many, many people would be directly on the computer, but it does seem to be, particularly when you're writing about perhaps personal experiences, there's a lot of research into journaling and things like that, that um, it, it actually probably is a, is better to uh, be doing it by pen and paper just because um, we, we tend to think about it more and take it in more. But yeah, definitely an interesting question. I guess I'm probably similar to you that I mm. at least will always write notes by hand. Mm. I'll keep mm -hmm. notebooks and things like that. I do, once I've got my idea, once I've paced out what I want to say and what I'm thinking I, I want to get across, I don't mind so much anymore using the computer because I do like the uh, ability to shift paragraphs around and do that kind <laughs> yes. of editing. Whereas, you know, with, with your writing, you've got to kind of put asterisks in and point it out. And But, you know, for years I, I couldn't work on a computer. It was all by hand. I used to travel a lot for work and I'd have – I'd get the hotel um, notepads that they'd give you <laughs> yeah. and I'd just have tons and tons from different hotels and, 
and do that. But I, I guess it, it, it's all sorts. I've spoken to writers before who still use the old legal, you know, yellow yep. legal pads. And, and John, I know you do a lot of long handwriting, but you probably also use your phone as well, I would well, yeah. you know, I, I think you're talking about a thought process mm. and um, it's it's so unusual. First of all, you know, when you're using a particular writing utensil, mm. something that, you know, when you hold it, uh, it, it kind of glides and uh, and then the surface that you're writing on, you know, the paper if it's in a if it's in a uh, you know a, a journal or a diary or something like that that you make sure I make sure that it, it can lie flat rather than having to wrestle with holding it open but um, I've experienced so many times that putting paper putting pen to paper bypasses thought that it's you know something comes through and it always surprises me, you know, what comes out on the paper. It's not like, oh, I'm thinking about it. It's it bypasses the thought. Mm. And and there's a there's a different kind of energy that that finally ends up on the paper. <laughs> That's really interesting. It's almost yeah, this almost this flow you're just in that moment and it's not about thinking about thinking. It's just doing mm-hmm. and something else comes through. That's it's a very interesting idea. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about, because you've worked with so many different publications and, and um, different uh, audiences, I, I've got a couple of questions. The first one is, how does your work life look? Is it, is it freelance? Are you on the staff of certain magazines, newspapers, internet publications, things like that? And then probably my next question would be advice to our uh, audience, people who are interested in pursuing writing in whatever form, uh, if you have any advice for how to start to make headway in that, in that area, particularly in this sort of internet age. So, yeah, I don't, um, how does it uh, look? Do you freelance? Do you um, become part of a staff? How does that work? So I personally began freelancing. I think the journalists, um, some of my fellow colleagues and fellow staff writers all began as freelancers mm. because when you're to create that that job for yourself and that image of a of a journalist, you you kind of have to start off by knowing the editors and emailing them and seeing if they're open to to work from contributors or new writers and that's kind of how I began you know it was just being a fan of of certain publications and either reaching out to them via social media or or sometimes most of the publications have an email or a ask the editor email and you can easily contact them through there and you know just give them compliments of what you like about their publication and topics that they, you know, kind of introducing yourself as a writer and the type of work you do or the type of subjects or topics that you want to cover. And it's very important to, to yeah, of course, introduce yourselves. You know, it, it, it's hard at first because like for me, when I was first starting out, I had no, no, professional experience in the field except for like writing for my school newspaper or writing for a a school publication a school magazine and you know it it can be really hard and challenging because these publications rely most on their staff that they already have in their 
in their offices, in their in their workplace, and they're kind of not willing to accept new writers. And mm. you know, one of the best advice that I can give, and the same one that I've gotten, is to not give up. Receiving like ten rejection letters in one month can be soul crushing and it does hurt but just remember that it has nothing to do with how you think or how you write you know it's just that maybe it's not the right time for that publication to to appreciate your your work like you know it, it could be down the line like in two months from now or, or like a year from now you know like for some publications for me it took like four or five years for me to actually write for them because i had to learn so much of my writing process the way i wanted my voice to be presented in my writing if i wanted to be seen as a as a serious writer or if I wanted to be seen as a writer who dealt more with like the fun things like whether it be concerts or music or like fun stuff so you kind of have to choose what kind of genre you you want to write whether it be poetry whether it be about politics or if you want to write about food I know uh, publication industry is really good because a lot of people are into like vegan making healthier options for for lunches or like for their kids and there's publications who are always looking for writers who can do a little bit more on eco-friendly products mm. as well and so you kind of have to find out your your niche as a writer and reach out to the publications that you like that you enjoy and that you want to contribute and introduce yourself introduce a little bit of your you know, if you get rejected once or twice, just know it's not it's not labeling you as as if you're a bad writer or a bad person. You know, it just means you have to work a little bit harder and mm -hmm. do a little bit more extra work, but it's all going to pay off. It's all going to pay off at the end. I promise. And right. you know what, yeah. sweetheart, you you're talking about your foundation because you mm -hmm. have parents that have imparted that that wonderful feeling of never giving up and you know not everyone has that foundation you are very fortunate to have it and when when one uh does not have you know let's say in their childhood or in their family uh that kind of support what would you say to a person who has the conviction of their beliefs and the ambition to pursue their interest, you know, but they, but they really don't, um, you know, they come from a more of a hardship kind of a situation that it much more so than, than you experienced. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, like you said, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have parents who have supported me along the way and, you know, even though at first they were like, no, you shouldn't go into writing, you know, you know, like you said, some people might not have that same foundation. And I feel like sometimes when we don't have that foundation, whether it be like having that brown in that specific art or, or hobby, you know, it can get difficult, but mm when you don't have somebody like that, you always have to rely on yourself because you don't have anybody else. You are your own supporter. You are your own believer. And even though you could be your worst critic, 
you want to make make yourself aware of talents and the capacities that you have because even with other when other people don't support you or they don't understand you you have to be that cheerleader who who keeps the the wheels rolling whether it be moving on or trying out something new because sometimes the other people are not going to be there or or other people are not going to agree with you or they're going to try to bring you down and you know having that capacity to and what you want to do and your goals and your dreams is is a very strong quality that a lot of people should should come in contact with because after all we're the only things that we have and the only people that we have so being a strong supporter of yourself and loving yourself and you know if you want to change your career course or if you want to try out a new hobby go for it just be aware that you can you can try new things and you could change and you could be who you want to be without relying on anybody else and that's that's the best advice that I could give is just being your own cheerleader and being there for yourself even when nobody else might seem to be on your same that is definitely an echo of love's a secret weapon first love yourself Mm -hmm. and and emanate your love out into the universe and you will connect with so many hearts if you don't have um per se a family um or or anyone in your childhood that gives you that support you you know there are times that i even feel that those that have departed are still there in support of you that if there's anyone you know if if you if you tune in that um you know there are <laughs> endless possibilities of even i mean i'm going to really go off but <laughs> when when you are a loving spirit and you you're in awe of life and every time you see anything that you know you're like what that's amazing that's an, another affirmation that you're not alone and you know and that you have that insight So I am so delighted that we could spend this time with you, Leticia. You, you're just like a lotus, you know, you've just blossomed. And (laughs) absolutely, absolutely. And, and Leticia, is there any, uh, any way you can point our listeners if they want to see more of your work or do they just Google you? What's the best way to uh, find out what you're up to or, or if there's anything you want to promote right now? Oh, so let's see. So yeah, you could definitely find me on Twitter and Instagram. That's mm-hmm. where I post a lot of my my articles and my recent um, writing works. And mm-hmm. my Instagram and my Twitter handles are both both the same. So mm-hmm. it is Leticia underscore right. So it's spelled L E T I C I A W R I T E S. The articles that I've been writing recently about, um, I did a most recent article on Herb Green, who was a a photographer in the 1960s, and Mm. he photographed Grace Slick and Janis Joplin just before their stardom, and, Mm. you know, he captured so many great images of of the era, just kids, high school kids, uh, young adults who enjoyed 
you know, living in the city or like living the summer of love. And that was mm -hmm. a really fun article to write about. And I've gotten to to cover artists as well. And modern music nowadays is kind of going back in retrospect to the 1960s, like whether it be the sound or like even the fashion on stage, it's it's really making a comeback. And one of those mm -hmm. artists that I was fortunate to interview was Pearl Charles. Michael Ralt, and mm -hmm. they're just incredible artists who are same freedom of the 1960s and like the sounds, the crumb bar and like the steel guitar and like mixing like disco music with a little bit of a country and like a soul sound. So I've interviewed them as well. And you can read that article in my, in my Twitter account. And then I will, if anybody is interested, I also post my link tree, my most recent works there. And I feel fine. I feel fine. It's hard to know why I resisted anything before. And, you know, I'm really excited for the work that I have coming up. And, you know, I'm so glad that I was able to talk with, with the both of you because it's it's something that, that, you know, I've always talked to other people about their passions or, like, their careers and their lives. And, you know, speaking a little bit about mine hopefully encourages other people to find out what hobbies they like or what 
if they want to pursue a writing career or a journalism career, you know, to try it out and see how it works. And, you know, hopefully I've inspired other people to keep on trucking and keep on going and never give up. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank we look, you, honey. <laughs> we look forward to, to reading your work and seeing what you do next as well. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys. Lots of love to you, dear. Same to you, Donna. It was a pleasure talking with you again. I'm so happy that, you know, we were able to discuss some more because it's been several years and I'm so glad we were given this opportunity to talk again and share a little bit more about our lives and, you know, just love and self-love. And it's it's just wonderful. And I'm so thankful. Lots of love to you and your family and where you live. Much love and hugs to you too. Bye-bye, lovey. (laughs) Bye-bye. Yes, love.